Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer. And welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. Daily Virus, where we discuss the latest news. Views, views madness, advice and... Advice. And advice and everything else of the pandemic. It's Friday, June the 19th. It's the end of week 13 of the two-week uh, flatten the curve uh, yes. lockdown. That's, number, three, number that's three months and a week, by the way. It's, sometimes it's better to say it that way. That's why I kind of decided to write it that way. It's three months and a week. Of a two-week lockdown. Of a two-week lockdown. So what's happening today, Philem? Uh, well, we've got Grusom Newsom and his lying friends in the media. Uh, so we've got the latest mandate from Herr, Herr Newsom. And we have the BBC, who may have actually stumbled upon an actual news story, but let's not hold our breaths on that. Let's have, let's check that story out. And the Wall Street Journal um, has a really great editorial um, from the edit, from the editorial board talking about what the models get wrong so every like, time. So like, don't hang out with Harvey Weinstein or whatever. Very funny. And we have a story. Remember, I said yesterday we talk about um, the to- the toll that tourism is, is is having to suffer. So we're going to look at a bit of that. About mm-hmm. that. And how are you are you one of those people who's reading War and Peace, Crime and Punishment, Middlemarch? Uh, lots of people are taking advantage of the time that they have in quarantine or in lockdown to to read the book that they've pretended to be reading at dinner parties for years and have mm-hmm. thought right for the first time. I'm going to read all a thousand pages of whatever. And we have a very funny story, f- again, from Lockdown Skeptics. Our friend Lockdown Skeptics have a great story about um, very fun f- fun facts happening with people filling in the quarantine um, yeah. forms. Form in, in the a- UK. You now have to go to a 14-day quarantine in the UK. That's going to really help tourism. So let's start. Rusum Newsom, Gavin Newsom, our, our glorious governor here, and his lying friends in the media. The headline in the NPR, but it's, it's all over the shop. Governor, California Governor Newsom makes face masks mandatory amid rising coronavirus cases. That's the story everywhere, the rising yes. coronavirus cases. But we're going to come to that. Mandate, man, and there's a cat there's jumping up. Cat. Uh, we woke him up early this morning. Uh, hello, scaredy cat. Uh, so don't you be knocking against my computer now, scaredy cat. So they don't give, but they don't give us the figures. How much are the cases rising by? What about deaths, hospitalizations? You know, a story I always find when you do we look at the NPR and they say something's happening, but they don't give you figures or con- even context for the figures. It generally means the figures don't match the narrative and they're not prepared to go there. So he's requiring, he says, masks are, uh, requ- are required, are mandated. You have to wear them if you're standing in line anywhere. Yeah, you have to, you know, wear them if you're going to be anywhere where you're not going to be six feet from anyone. Uh, including while taking public transportation, seeking medical medical care, and in most work scenarios. Mm-hmm. So we should actually be wearing masks now, then. Yeah, I think we're all right, though, because the only people in this work scenario are you and I, Phil. Yes. Because nobody else is coming here. Well, but but well. obviously, if anyone else does come, we're going to have to force yes. them into wearing so, masks. You know, uh, there's a few exceptions, but they're, but it's, it's more nonsense from the governor. And so... This NPR story, you know, the one that said at the beginning, the ra- number of the rising cases, the only figures they have at the, at the end is more than 161,000 people have been identified with the virus. Identified uh, with the virus, right? Which, which means they've been tested and they've finally beaten the virus. Mm-hmm. California's had a, uh, you know, and a total number of deaths connected to COVID-19 is 5,290. Connected to, not caused by, but connected to. Now, in New York, that's 20,000. So California's with twice the population has got off relatively likely but there's no uh, context for any of this about this creeping death that mandates this 
forcing people to wear a piece of clothing over their mouth. And this is happening, by the way. I mean, what's really funny about this mandate is that it's coming now, um, you know, more than halfway through June. Yes. So more than three months more than three months after we had the original lockdown, now, now is when Gavin yes. Newsom's deciding to get the masks out. After being told initially that masks were not effective at all. So we've had a few runs on the masks. They weren't important. They were important. They weren't important. And now they're, now they're super important. Now they're really, really important. Three so, months later. So I had to go to CNBC to get the, the numbers on a different story. And, uh, you know, that, it was just the figures story. And yes, there are more cases because hospitals are reopening now uh, for all kinds of elective. In fact, our friend uh, went for his operation there on his knee. And of course, you're tested. Uh, and because there's so much more testing and the tests are cheap now in public places, there, there are so many more cases. So yes, there are a rise in cases. Uh, but then you go back and you suddenly look at a news briefing on Monday. Gavin Newsom, who on Friday is saying the rise in cases means we have to wear masks. Attribute the rise in overall cases to increased testing. Mm -hmm. He added that the percentage of people testing positive had remained stable at around 4.5% for more than a month. So, there's not a new increase in cases, there's an increase in testing. There's no need to wear a mask. But I, you know, I, I honestly think it's the people in the power who want to get at Trump. I think it's, it's a lot of Trump. They want to obviously frighten people and control people but there's a lot of they want to get a trump and the way to frighten people is to you walk on the street and you see people wearing masks it is frightening Panic, it, it, yeah. it makes you feel awful and that's what i think they want they want you to feel awful well this is, you know the next story we have is actually a really interesting story from the bbc which is a really interesting story except for they've kind of completely missed the story and it's an unusual story for the bbc Can I just one say of those something? really really long stories which they don't normally do the film like a rule of other you know it's the same as if the figures aren't in the story then the the, the figures don't match the narrative if they miss the story it's because they they're not stupid they've missed it for a reason so the the headline is coronavirus what is the true death toll of the pandemic and they, they've managed at this late stage in June to discover something that we've been talking about, you know, many, many times on the, on the daily virus, which is about um, excess deaths. So these are the numbers. And it's very easy, obviously, to record this. All they have to do is look at the number of people, the complete number of people who have died in a region this month, as opposed to the same month last year or the same period last year. And so they've seen a difference pretty much everywhere. They've seen a difference quite, mm -hmm. um, and some places a much bigger difference. And they call the difference, you know, an excess of deaths. But then out of the excess of deaths, if you take away the people who died of COVID, there still remains an excess of deaths, not from COVID, but obviously caused by well, what's been going on and but this is what they don't this is the bit that the BBC they don't find a reason why those people might have died but it's called like an excess death but anyway they basically say at the head you know in the early paragraph at least another 130,000 people worldwide have died during the coronavirus pandemic on top of 440,000 officially recorded deaths so, so, so a from the virus. A huge number compared to, you know, so 440,000 people, 130,000 excess deaths. That's a huge number in that pile. And, and, and they didn't die of COVID, but they were more than what would be expected for this time of so year. So they died of the panic. Yeah. They died, of, who knows, they, they, they killed themselves. 
Uh, they died from drug overdoses. They died from um, alcoholism. You know, they died for not for from not going to the hospital early enough for a condition that was treatable because they were terrified that they would get this other that they would get this other condition. And many and they didn't get the treatments that they should have gotten for their cancer. They didn't get detected with cancers. They didn't get vaccinations. They, you know, they had but a stroke or a heart attack, but didn't want to go. Exactly, but the BBC managed to not uh, find any. They don't, they don't proffer any possible explanation for these excess deaths. Um, but they spend a lot of time looking at it. And it's kind of, it's very sad, actually. Because I'll just give you some idea. And, uh, they, you know, and they have done a huge amount of work on this. And I've looked at these excess deaths in lots of different countries. And for example, in the United Kingdom, the other excess deaths, so these are excess deaths that are not, that are not caused by, the, that are not the COVID, 12,729 people who wouldn't have been expected to have died otherwise, who didn't die of the, the actual virus, <coughs> excuse me, who died of something else. Same in Brazil, 3,486 people. In Ecuador, by the way, an extraordinary number, by the way, the number of deaths, by the way, in Ecuador has been 108% higher than average. And 16,000 people died, not of the COVID in this period, as an excess number. <coughs> Excuse me. Would you like some water? I think I might need some water. You can run off and get me some water and I can keep telling keep, this keep, story, Phil. But basically, they go through all these countries that have these excess deaths. And it's really, really sad. And by the way, here in the United States, the excess number... <coughs> The excess number here in the United States is 26,986. That's 26,986 people who died not of the virus, but who were excess of what normally would be expected at this time of year. And that number is based on, you know, statistics that they've collected between February the 16th, if you think of that mm -hmm. date, February the 16th and the 2nd of May. So, so, so it doesn't include June and you know, it doesn't probably include early February and, and January when people were suffering as well. You know? But I suppose the pandemic actually was, was the cause of it. So. But the young guy, the, you know, the guy, you know, the guy who does this story for the BBC, Robert, you know, Robert Cuff, Cuff head, head, of, head of statistics, you know, and he asks... This all is these, London calling. London calling. And he does all these questions, you know, how are excess deaths measured? How was the outbreak defined in each area? What does none overall mean? What sources were used? Are there other ways to measure the virus's impact? And he has all these things that he asks, but he really misses the one thing that really would be the question on everyone's lips. Have you, by any chance, any explanation of why all these people died and didn't die of the virus? What was it that killed them? And you, actually, the story doesn't give you any indication at all. They basically really don't give you any indication of exactly what happened. It might have been an idea for a journalist or an organisation as austere and as, you know, so well celebrated as the BBC that they might have just asked someone. Or, or someone who calls himself head of statistics for the BBC. Might have, you know, might have, could have asked a question of somebody, could have asked hospitals, could have made a, done a little bit of a survey, even anecdotally, come up with some kind of a, an explanation for this enormous number of deaths. So it's, a, it's a, just a horrible story. Um, you know, and again, it's yeah, story missing, a story missing the story. But the yeah. editorial board in the Wall Street Journal have a great piece, by the way. Called, they, they don't miss the story. They don't miss the story. What COVID mo models get wrong? Um, and they say, basically, you know, here we go again. So the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation has issued a new forecast that COVID-19 fatalities would spike over the summer. 
In states that have moved faster to reopen, cue the media drumbeat for another lockdown. Maybe someone should first explain why the models were wrong about so much the last time. So before they start to sort of smack their lips in excitement about the prospect can you, can you, of a huge spike in the you, summer. Do you hear what you're saying there? They're, smack, they're smacking their lips about the possibility of a huge spike in cases in the summer. No, no, These they are. These are journalists yeah. smacking their lips and, and, and activists smacking their lips that, that people might die. Yep. So they, Funny old world. Yeah. So take New York, by the way, you know, where New York, where Andrew Cuomo locked down the state in mid-March based on dire warnings. His public, and these are great numbers, that, that and, and of course the Wall Street Journal is not avoiding the numbers. His public health experts projected the state would need as many as 140,000 hospital beds and 40,000 intensive care units. Two to three times more regular hospital beds and 10 times more ICU beds than were available. The University of Washington model forecast that 49,000 regular beds and 8,000 ICU beds would be needed at the peak. New York was hard hit, and this is all again from the Wall Street Journal, but COVID-19 hospital beds utilisation in New York peaked at 18,000 and 5,225 for ICUs in mid-April. Even in New York City, hospital, listen to this, this is just extraordinary, hospital utilization never exceeded 85% of capacity and 89% for ICUs. Let's just go over those figures again. So the New York public health people predicted said we'll need 140,000 hospital beds. University of Washington said 49,000. the actual peak utilization was 18,000. Yeah. Right? Uh, they said the public health experts in New York said, well, it's going to need 40,000 intensive care units. The University of Washington said 8,000 care units, but they actually only used uh, 5,000 5, 5, intensive 5, care units. You know, extraordinary. Um, and New York was the country's front line in the coronavirus attack, the Wall Street Journal goes on to say, and caution was needed in the early days because so little was known about the virus. The original University of Washington model, which was based on the experiences in Italy and Wuhan, assumed that strict lockdowns would curb infections, reduce hospitalizations and lower deaths faster than they actually did in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. Asked last month, and I love this quote, this quote is just darling. Asked last month about when fatalities and hospitalizations would meet state thresholds for reopening Governor Cuomo responded, and when you hear this, by the way, because yeah. I've looked at this a number of times because I thought they had the Wall Street Journal got this down wrong, but no, they haven't. All the early national experts, comma, here's my projection model. They were all wrong. They were all wrong. There are a lot of variables. I understand that. We didn't know what the social distancing would actually amount to. I get it. But we were all wrong. <laughs> That's Governor Cuomo. We were all wrong. Governor Hotspot. Governor Hotspot. Hospital utilization by COVID-19 patients in New York City has fallen, by the way, 94% since the peak, which has allowed some non-essential treatments to resume, you know, which has allowed some non-essential treatments to resume. New York City has 29% of its hospital beds and 34% of its intensive care units now available. New cases have fallen by about 40% and new hospitalizations by a third in the last two weeks, despite the recent protests. So the recent protests 
have not seen a massive spike in cases. And this is something we spoke about mm-hmm. in yesterday's show, where we talked about, you know, where we talked about Toby Young was making that point, where he was thanking Black Lives Matter protesters for proving a point that, you know, there they all well, were yeah, he, on top of each other. He, he, and suddenly there wasn't a massive peak. He calculated there was 300,000 people took to the streets in the UK. How many millions took to the streets here? I mean, all, all of the places. It's a wonderful... Uh, it's like a, it's like a, it's actually in, it's an it's an extraordinary thing, but it's like one of the largest ever experiments. Yes, that's what I said. Ever I done. Want, I just want to finish that sentence. It's, I said it's a wonderful, and then I didn't finish it. It's a wonderful experiment. I mean, this will prove whether it's a mass- scientific experiment. Particularly, actually, it'll give people incredible information about people being in close quarters outdoors. Mm-hmm. At least that, at least that. So um, so the Wall Street Journal go on, and I really do want to read this because I think this is incredibly important because we are hearing more and more of these stories mm-hmm. and particularly these scolding stories yeah. and threatening stories about states that have started to reopening, to reopen. And particularly we've been hearing a lot about Arizona. Arizona gets mentioned all the time. Warnings about reopening states are also overblown, the Wall Street Journal editorial board say. While Arizona has had an uptick in hospitalizations, about 59% of its emergency beds and 17% of its ICU beds are unused. A month ago, 43% of hospitalized patients with COVID were in the ICU. Now only a third are. Suggesting that better and earlier treatment is easing disease severity. And again, the same in, in Texas. Hospitalizations have also been climbing. But weekly fatalities are down 40% from a month ago. COVID, this is in Texas, COVID-19 patients occupy fewer than 5% of all hospital beds and more than a quarter are available, even in Houston, which has experienced the biggest increase in hospitalization. COVID-19 patients occupy only 6% of hospital beds. More than 20% are unused. That's in Texas. That's in Texas. Amazing. You know, and it just goes on and on. But I have to say that that quote, by the way, from Gavin Newsom is really funny from Monday. But, it, you know, but basically, you know, it's an interesting story. Um, and, I, I, you know, it, it kind of proves the point, And I think the Wall Street Journal are pointing out that point that the media are really smacking their lips and hoping that there's a surge, hoping that suddenly we have to have another lockdown. But the facts are not meeting that. Well, I think, I think they say it there. There will be a, a surge in new infections as states reopen. But... But and they'll have to be careful how to manage that. Yes. But the cost of the lockdown, these models always overpredict and underdeliver, and the cost of the lockdown is too great to sustain. And we have to live with the risks, cocoon the elderly, cocoon the vulnerable, and let the rest of us uh, build a, an economy so that we can keep cocooning these people until yeah. we get a vaccine. Yeah, and and also that you know. Um, uh, again, I'd like the BBC story, you know, we, we take, should take a lot more attention for people who are dying, not of the COVID, yes. but because of the COVID and, f- and obviously for other reasons. So the other thing we'd said, I'd said yesterday that I really did want to dig into this tourism story. And I've, I've just dug into it a little bit today, actually, funny enough, with a story running in The Guardian. Uh, of all places, and they've got some great you numbers. You mean the uh, slave supporting guardian? The slave supporting guardian. Tell us about yes. the slave supporting guardian. Well, I, so the guard, so they're tearing down statues all over the world to people who made their money out of slavery, uh, and who supported slavery, and and even William, even Gladstone's statue is being pulled down in London, in London, not because he supported slavery, but because his father supported slavery. Gladstone actually was a was a huge abolitionist and fought for the end of slavery. 
So the Guardian newspaper is leading the charge, but it turns out that the Guardian newspaper uh, was was funded and founded by someone who owned slaves, uh, owned a slave plantation uh, in the West Indies. Then, guess who the Guardian supported in the American Civil War? The South. Guess who they called evil? Abraham Lincoln. Guess who they wrote? A re- guess what they did when Lincoln was assassinated? Wrote a sneering uh, editorial about how awful President Lincoln was. So I think we need to close down the Guardian yep. and they need to redistribute their profits yes. uh, to the descendants of slaves. Yes, yes. Um, and so the to- back to the tourism story from Sorry, the Guardian. From the Guardian. But, it's, but in the meantime, we'll read it's their funny, stories. It's funny, actually. It's a, great, it's, a, it's a very good story with a lot of really um, very strong information, a lot of very good facts that are very, very depressing. But the conclusion of the story by the Guardian is very Guardian-esque and just kind of hilarious. And I'm going to read well, that at the end. I One thing I would say is they've been leading this anti-tourism. Yeah, they haven't. That's true. It's nothing new with them. So they're very anti-tourism. Go but on, but, but even ahead. but even for the, the Guardian, they are stuck with this. So it's anyway, let, let's hear a little bit about this. I mean, it's quite funny. On May the 7th, the UN World Tourism Organization estimated that earnings from international tourism might be down 80 percent this year against last year's figure of 1.7 trillion dollars and that 120 million jobs could be lost now there's no way of there's no good way to to spin that there's no good way to spin that 120 million million jobs and this is exactly what i say united nations but still and they're terrible figures but you know well, we can, but you can dig into you can, this. And you, but you can, you can see it on the streets of LA. You can yeah, see it in the streets and Italy, of New York. You know, tourism accounts for 15% of Spain's GDP, 13% of, of course, Italy's of GDP. Course. But painful though its loss is for the most diversified economies in Southern Europe, it is, li- and this is the Guardian, by the way, it is life-threatening for tourism's dependencies, such as the Maldives, where tourism contributes around a third of GDP or for emerging destinations like Georgia. Georgia East Georgia. East, East, Georgia East. in Eastern Europe, where visitor numbers have more than quadrupled in the past decade. In April, Edmund Bartlett, the tourism minister of Jamaica, where the, con- where the industry brings in more than 50% of the island's foreign currency, bemoaned the fact that there had been, I just think, I, I read this stuff and it makes me want to cry, zero arrivals for uh, Montego, Montego Bay, the airport, zero arrivals for Kingston's airport and zero guests in hotels on top of the 300,000 people who are without jobs because of all the transportation systems that support tourism are at a halt because the farmers who support tourism have nowhere to sell their crops because the attractions are closed. And it goes on and on. And actually, actually, the ne- you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this bit because it's actually fabulous. Uh, you know, just to, just to watch The Guardian tell a story really well, by the yeah. way, and then how they, how they spin it in a very Guardian-esque way. So, three, so then they look at Africa, by the way. Three quarters of the two million foreign tourists who came to Kenya last year came for the wildlife. Were it not for tourism, many of the 160 private reserves that provide vital corridors for migrating animals and excess grazing capacity for the country's national parks would revert to being hunting grounds or be turned over for agriculture, threatening one of the greatest concentrations of animal life in the world. 
The loss of incomes caused by the pandemic might yet precipitate disaster. Right. So, of course, the Guardian, you see, really care about the animals. Right. They yes. really care about the endangered species. They really don't like hunting. So they're in a dilemma here. Right. So tourism, nasty, evil tourism contributes so much money to Kenya's uh, economy. It helps the animals. And, right. And people go to see animals. So it, it discourages hunting. You know, so then in uh, fact, it encourages breeding. It's, I just, you know, uh, but they, you know, so, so, so they're in this dilemma, but here's how they spin it. Destructive though it is, and by the way, there is such an elitist, sneering, mm-hmm. um, hor- just a horrible attitude being displayed here by the, new, by, by, the, by the Guardian. Destructive though it is, the virus has offered us the opportunity to imagine a different world. <laughs> One in which we start decarbonizing, of course, of course, decarbonizing and staying local. The absence of tourism has forced us to consider ways in which the industry can diversify, indigenize and reduce its dependency on the all singing, all dancing carbon disaster that is global aviation. What horrible, horrible people yeah. you are, Guardian. And, and you know what's funny actually, um, and I won't read all the rest of it, but I, I, but I could. What they basically recommend sure. is that tourism be, be, become really expensive so that it continues to, ah. to pump money into these places, but much, 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 much fewer people go. Um, so so elitist. So basically, actually, what they're saying, if you look back at that phrase, I love that. Diversify, indigenize, you know, indigenous, sorry, decarbonize and stay local. So what they're actually uh, looking for is a return to the 19th century or the 18th century. Yeah. When posh people went on safari and, you know, very few went, but they dropped a ton of money, really rich people from the colonies or whatever, from the, you know, the colonial. From types, the mother country. From the mother country went and dropped a ton of money, but very few people went. So they didn't leave a huge, massive footprint. Um, but all of the... All of the smelly masses that we mm. would be part of, all those smelly masses, we just stayed where we were. We never got out of our local area. We never married outside why of our local you? area. We never saw anything or saw anything else. It's funny. But you're, why would you want that? And this is what they're actually, yeah, it's you funny. know, they're touting this. So this is nothing new. Back when the, the airline, back when the trains came to England, the lords and ladies were aghast that the oaks could now go to the coast at the weekend for a few pennies. And, you know, they loved going to the beach at the weekend and getting the fresh air. And so did the oaks. And they hated the fact that the oaks could do this. So this this is nothing new, this elitism. And I'm just, I read the last line of the story. Can yeah. you believe this? I mean, I, you know, this is who these people are, you know, and they'd like to say, you know, they pretend to be the working man's, you know, they're talking for the working man. They hate the working man. Listen to this. The last line, such instincts to tame tourism's excesses through taxes and pricing need to be adopted everywhere. Tourism isn't the right, isn't, excuse me, tourism isn't the right that many holidaymakers, whatever their budgets, seem to think it is. It's a luxury that needs to pay its way. So, okay for me, Stay at home. okay for me, but not okay for it's you. It's very funny. So, international travel is only for rich people, unless you're really, really poor from Africa. Then you, should, then you can come and migrate to a country. 
Um, we should actually call ourselves refugees. We should call cruise ships should just call themselves refugee ships. We should all pay to be refugees. Then we could all go everywhere. Then, and then the Guardian was, would allow us to travel everywhere. Okay, our next story then. On a is, lighter note. On a lighter note, you know, have you been reading, you know, massive tomes during the lockdown? And it's just a really nice story from the Wall Street Journal about all these people. And by the way, I, w- I kind of lo- read this and feel very jealous of people who did have the time and who were n- were not working and had the money and the time um, and energy to to read these huge books. So you know, this, they, the Wall Street Journal talks about this guy Hugh Barham was running out of things to do. He had labelled his spice cabinet, baked his own sourdough and installed custom lighting on his bookshelves. 17 days into lockdown, he started War and Peace. For the 32-year-old New York employment lawyer reading the 1,247-page tome with its scores of characters, monologues on Freemasonry extended, which nightmare, by the way, monologues on free on free masonry. masonry, extended descriptions of military tactics and long passages in French finally didn't feel like homework. It felt more like the last thing keeping him sane. And basically, they did this. They have this story about lots and lots of people who took the advantage of the quarantine to say, you know what, I'm going to read War and Peace. A lot of people read War and Peace. A lot of people, apparently, quite a lot of people read Ulysses, uh, The Odyssey. Um, and some people were sort of basically saying that... Middle were, March is... Middle, I, March, is, Middle funny, March is a mere 800 pages. Middle March is only, in a, on, on, only 880. And that was one that I remember in college myself. I remember looking at it and being that youthful person who looked at it and thought... I'm not going to choose that novel. I'm going to choose a thinner one. And actually, the guy who lectured us and lectured on Middlemarch recited a passage, a couple of lines from Middlemarch. And after he did that, I thought, okay, I need to read this. And the line he recited was, if if I had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and a squirrel's heartbeat. And I should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the best of us walk about well-wadded in stupidity. And actually, the lecturer, I, I said to the lecturer, that book is too big for me to read. And then he read that quote as a way of shaming me. And you know what? It worked. I'd highly recommend Middlemarch. It's one of my favorite books in the whole world. I think it's extraordinary. And think, then our I last story. It. Oh, it's incredible. It's a, it's a beautiful. It, it's just perfect. It's perfect. Written by George. Who, who wrote it? George Eliot. George Eliot. George Eliot, who's a girl, by the way. Uh, so the last story we have today is from Lockdown Skeptics. And it's just really delightful. It's so delightful. Only governments can mess things up so comprehensively that they create these fabulous stories for the Mail Online. Like, really, only the government could get this right. So a mix-up. This is in the UK. A mix-up on the UK's government's new online quarantine form has given the option for travellers entering the UK entering the UK to declare themselves as being from countries which no longer exist. So, so just to explain, when you go into the UK now, you have to say where you've come from on a form and all these details about yourself and at a phone number as well. And but where you're going to be for the next fourteen days, and you have to be in one place. That's quarantine, and you're not allowed to leave it. Very, very important. Very welcoming. But they're but but very welcoming. But you know, but they're so strict and they're so careful and they've done everything okay. so, so well. So scientific. So scientific. That they have on the form there's a drop down menu with countries that do not exist anymore. For example, Czechoslovakia and 
the USSR. Back in Remember? the USSR. Back in the USSR. And by the way, both of those Czechoslovakia and USSR have not existed for almost three decades. That just ages me really badly because mm-hmm. I can remember when both of them did exist. Yeah. Other options include... I still believe that Czechoslovakia exists. No, it doesn't. Other options included in the drop-down menu in my mind. list were the German Democratic Republic. Do you remember that place? Yes. Known as East Germany, which was reunified with West Germany in 1990. Another place that's in the drop-down menu for the UK's quarantine form is Upper Volta. Now, I do not really remember Upper Volta, which is now the West African country of Burkina, Burkina Faso. And Southern Rhodesia, which is now part of Zimbabwe. Isn't that magnificent? Yeah. Isn't that just magnificent, you know? So they've got these, as I said, you know, and we really should make more of these grey people in their grey offices with, with their, their full-time salaries. With their full-time fabulous, beautiful, Actually, they're not, in, they're not in their salaries. offices now. They're sitting at home. They're sitting at home having a fabulous time. And they're so lazy that they went and decided to find you know, oh, let's find a list of countries. And they took it from some out-of-date Encyclopedia Britannica from back in the day. And you got USSR and Czechoslovakia. Anyway. And didn't check it. And didn't check it. Phelan, have you any final thoughts for today, for Friday? Friday. Have a good weekend. We've got to have a great daily buyer or scoop next week on Wednesday. Oh, yes. Some very interesting guests. Yes. But we're going to be, again, broadcasting every day. Please leave a comment on the Apple Podcast app. Uh, we really appreciate the comments. And we're getting the audience, just like the coronavirus cases, the audience is going up every day. Uh, <laughs> but, but there's no fatalities with our virus um, yeah. audience. They're all they're all thriving. Yes. And con- I hope you all continue to thrive and keep, uh, keep tuning in. We love having you. Um, soon. Next time. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Hey.